welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 38th episode, I'll be talking to Andrew Isla, writer and film critic, about Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Along the way, we discuss using the universal monsters as a theme for decorating your kitchen, the pervasive nature of Skuck's life, and what you get when a generation of writers have been raised by television and then write television. We'll finish the show with a signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the map of you. We join this conversation already in progress. Protect your language. All right, Andrew. So, for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake? Well, my name is Andrew Isla. I am a writer, first and foremost. Lately, most of the writing I do has been kind of on Twitter. I tend to talk about movies a lot on there. Sometimes I try to formalize it in like a live tweet or an essay of some kind in a, in a tweet storm, which I would have stopped doing if people seemed annoyed, but people seem to generally respond to it. So I kind of keep doing that. You can generally find my writing at Talk Film Society, which is kind of a new up and coming film essay and critique and review website. Some really great people. They I was fortunate enough to be invited to join them. I write stuff there. I usually have one or two pieces a week, kind of on average, where we talk about, you know, anything we want to talk about about movies, generally kind of appreciating old movies, sometimes timed to tie in with new movies. So it's, you know, always kind of timely, but reflective. It's a great site. So check that out. And I've got, you know, some projects in the works. I've got a a novella that I'm be publishing later this year, little things like that. So I guess my identity is kind of scattered across the internet of being just kind of guy who writes about movies first and foremost. And you've got to mention your Nosferatu project. Yeah, I sort of gained a little bit of like quasi internet fame. I don't want to say it made me famous or anything, but people seem to respond to a couple of video editing projects I've done in the past year or two. This past Halloween, I edited. I didn't so much edit the movie, but I rescored the classic F.W. Murnau silent vampire film Nosferatu which I think most people are at least passingly familiar with, with Berlin-era Bowie tracks. That got some recognition. And I also recut Tim Burton's Batman Returns uh, as a silent film, color graded it down to black and white and did titles and just put Danny Elfman's score in there. I did that a couple years ago. And then this year... I put it back up at Christmas time and it kind of went viral and got some attention. So you may have actually seen that going around, um, even if you don't know me. That was my thing. And listeners, if that sounds even remotely up your alley, I highly recommend you check them both out. They're very cool. They're not currently up right now, but I've been looking for a way to share it in some way that doesn't cost me money to host it. Because <laughs> I didn't dare put it on YouTube because they're both not strictly, you know, copyright legal. Legal schmeagle. I hosted it on my own little server and just posted a link to it thinking it would just be like for friends. And in previous years when I've done stuff like that, it cost me like, you know, $12 to do it for a month or something. And then this past Christmas when the Batman Returns went kind of viral, I ended up with a bill for like $350 I wasn't expecting. So I'm not doing that again. <laughs> Ooh, no, we don't want any of that. <laughs> But they may reappear in some form. Some people who I don't even know will like request a link, and I'll, I, I want to find a way to do that. So maybe we'll find a way to get that back online. I have faith in the power of the internet. <laughs> so whereabouts did you grow up, Andrew? 
I grew up in North Dakota, which not a whole lot of people can say because there aren't a whole lot of people there. The town I spent most of my adolescence in is called Botno. It's a small rural community. There's about 2,000 people in the whole kind of county and surrounding areas. It's about 20 minutes south of the Canadian border, so it's right up there. In fact, we had a lake cabin that you could just walk across the border (laughs) back before people stopped you from doing things like walking across a border. Now I live in in Tucson, Arizona, as of this past year. So it's been a kind of going from one isolated, barren wasteland to to a desert, which is a different kind of isolated, barren environment, uh, kind of the polar opposite. Equally isolated, equally barren, just in a different way. Sort of, yeah. I would say, you know, definitely the experience of growing up in North Dakota kind of informed a lot of how I, you know, consume media and see the world and everything because there was just such a kind of isolated experience. <laughs> It's strange. I can say, being a former Canadian, current Australian, I know next to nothing about North Dakota, except for occasionally movies and forests are set there. That's all I know. Yes. In fact, most recently, Logan featured a climax entirely set in quote-unquote North Dakota, which was not North Dakota. Halfway through the movie, when Hugh Jackman said, I'm not taking you to North Dakota, I leaned over to my wife, Jojo Seams, and said, I bet when they get there, there's going to be mountains. Because people always want to put mountains in North Dakota. There are no mountains in North Dakota. There's the opposite. It's all, it is It is remarkably flat. That is its defining characteristic. Sure enough, they get to North Dakota in Logan, and it's full of mountains. And I was kind of distracted through the entire climax by that. I feel bad because I was picturing mountains when I said that. <laughs> See, that's what everyone who's never been there thinks. There's They've got the Badlands kind of in the southwest corner. So it's got like some valleys, some topography there where, you know, there's some interesting rock formations and stuff. But aside from that southwest corner where the Badlands start, it is just flat valley all the way across, which is, you know, the movie Fargo really does depict it quite accurately, even though it's more set in Minnesota than North Dakota. It's got that kind of flat white, you know, those shots of just the sky and the ground are the same gray <laughs> color. That is that is what North Dakota is like. I was going to say, I'm not sure we should take Fargo as any kind of representative sample of anything from the amount of murder that goes on on the television show. And the amount of mocking of Steve Buscemi that happens in the movie, I think, is not a representative (laughs) example of anyone. Yeah, that movie actually captures a lot of specifics very well. And people from North Dakota like to argue it. Mm -hmm. If you go to Fargo and you bring up the movie Fargo, nine times out of ten, you'll get, oh, we don't talk like that. It was ridiculous. (laughs) But A, we kind of do. And B, you know, the Coens are from Minneapolis. They're from the area. It was a loving homage, even when it was heightened. But little details like how the ground and the sky kind of meet and make the same color and things like having to jump your car in the morning before you go to work is really <laughs> captures the experience better than anything else I've seen. Anytime you try and defend any sort of regional accent, you run into problems because no one's quite the same. Like I can recall trying to explain to Australians that, oh, no, 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 Canadians don't sound like what you think they would sound like. You know, we don't say (laughs) A all the time. We don't. And then having my mom on the phone, and she was speaking to my ex at the time, and my ex was like, oh, yeah, we had a good day. Oh, hey, that's nice, eh? And I'm like, oh, mom, don't. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, you go to, let's say, eastern North Dakota, western Minnesota, that whole region that, like, that movie takes place in. Sure, not everyone is like, oh, don't you know? But, like, a lot of us are. (laughs) It's It's not wrong. It's just more of a sliding scale than the movie presents because the movie is a cartoon. I look forward to your tweet storm about the movie Fargo, where you just point out, you're like, that wouldn't happen. That's entirely accurate. Yeah, there's very few things in that movie that would never happen. It's maybe not typical, but a lot of it is 
incredibly accurate. You've heard it here first. Andrew Isla has declared that people die in wood chippers in North Dakota. <laughs> that wood chipper was in our, our uh, town visitor center in Fargo when I lived there. <laughs> what? Yeah, the screen used wood chipper. <laughs> did it still have the foot sticking out of it? No, it did not. But MGM actually commissioned a sculpture out of wood chips of Marge Gunderson and donated it to the Fargo Theater. <laughs> Which was like the art house downtown. It wasn't like the Megaplex, but they're called the Fargo Theater. That's just what they call themselves. And it's, you know, a theater that's been around since the 20s. And they were like the one theater that might get kind of independent films every now and then. And uh, it was upstairs there. And I would always take people to see the statue of Woodchip Marge. (laughs) Sorry, it's hard to come back from Woodchip Marge. I know. In this flat, white, featureless wasteland, what sort of kid were you? I was an only child, which I think anyone who's been an only child knows that kind of forms how you behave because you spend a lot of time trying to entertain yourself in a way that kids with siblings often don't need to do. My mom was very much a night owl and I completely inherited that. My peak hours are like 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. That's when I'd rather be, you know, productive and doing things. And my dad is really not. He kind of goes to bed a little early. And my mom worked nights. She's a nurse. So there were a lot of nights where I was kind of left to sort of entertain myself because dad would kind of snooze off early and mom would be at work and I would, for all intents and purposes, be home alone. I prided myself on being smart. I was pretty much a a straight A student most of the time until I got to high school and got all stressed out and anxious and all that stuff that tends to set in, definitely set in. (laughs) I prided myself on being kind of the weird kid. I liked, you know, having one or two friends that I was close with and otherwise kind of not being into the same things as everyone else, even if I sort of was like, you know, I was into The Simpsons and Star Wars like everyone else. But I I like to think of myself as someone who was different, whether that was true or not. (laughs) So my question is, when did the Universal Monsters come into it? Because that's kind of been intertwined with your brand, yours and JoJo's. I suppose it has. That wasn't even so much till high school, probably. My mom was is big into them and still is. I think I saw Young Frankenstein before I actually saw any of the original Universal Monsters movies. So it was one of those matters of like, oh, I get that now. The <laughs> way you kind of do if you grow up with spoofs and satire. Yes, I recognize that table. Yeah, exactly. And then around junior high or high school, my mom started buying the VHSs and, and DVDs of like the classic Universal Monsters movies because she was really into them and hadn't seen them since she was a kid. And that sort of got me into those. And then it was really when I married Jojo that like the thing when, when you're both into something that you each become a thousand times more into it. <laughs> yeah, because you kind of feed off each other and it just Yeah, works. you kind of just lean into it. So then it kind of became our shared brand of Frankensteins and Draculas, whereas the thing we were both into as kids and then it just exploded when we actually got married and it became like our decorating theme where our kitchen is universal monsters themed (laughs) we'll we'll get some photos of it for the show notes (laughs) because yeah that was where i first actually encountered yourself and jojo was when you were both on into it talking about i think it was about bride of frankenstein first was it yeah we've sort of become l has been gracious enough to sort of make us her halloween guests because we're both people who are really into halloween and l is also really into halloween the last two Halloweens in a row, we've been on into it. And they, and, and Elle has had other Halloween guests, too. But we were like the Halloween episode these last two years. So last year we did, or, or rather 2015, we went on and talked about the two James Bell Frankenstein movies because we're extremely passionate about those, And as is Elle. And then this past Halloween, we came on to talk about the Todd Browning, but we'll go see Dracula. So that's kind of become a tradition now of us being the Halloween guests on Into It with Elle Collins, which is always a good time. Yeah, and it was actually something where I had never really given the Frankenstein films the time of day. In my monster and horror movie viewing heyday, really, I never gave a passing thought to Frankenstein. I was like, okay, I, I think I know what it is. Oh, you know, he stands up, he's got the bolts in the neck. 
arms out, uh, you know, friend, friend good, fire bad, etc. Right. But listening to the two of you talk about the Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein films, I definitely was sort of reinvigorated to go and look again with a bit more of a critical eye. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm, I'm glad that us talking about things is something people like. <laughs> And I think, like, when you're talking about your sort of tweet storms around movies, all I really did enjoy your Wicker Man one that you did yesterday. Oh, I'm glad. We always make a point to watch Wicker Man on May Day since, you know, that's the central day around which the movie takes place. And it's one of our favorites for a lot of reasons, as I discussed on Twitter last night. Yeah. And isn't it great they never remade it? (laughs) That's, it's wonderful. I love that, like, it's just been untouchable all this time. Just like how, you know, Frank Miller hasn't made another comic after 1994. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Around the time Tim Burton stopped making movies, actually. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Funny how that works. How people can just let their legacies sit and not ruin them with terrible decisions. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I now have to say, because we've been talking about Universal Monster stuff, I have to ask, have you seen What We Do in the Shadows? Oh, yeah. That that like instantly became one of our favorite movies. <laughs> We saw it twice in the theater, which not many people did because it got such a limited release. We saw it in two different cities we happened to be in while it was playing and then immediately bought the Blu-ray. And it's been we watch it pretty often. We just throw it on when we want something fun in the background. It's, it's one of those because we were already, you know, Flight of the Concords fans. And then when we were like, oh, the people behind that show and starring in that show have made a mockumentary about vampires. As people who love Flight of the Concords and Christopher Guest and vampires, it is unsurprisingly 1000 percent our jam gonna say it's pretty much has your name stamped all over it basically and of course that, that was the first taika waititi film that we had seen because before that we only knew him from the episodes he directed of flight of the concords so i'm psyched that he's becoming kind of a mainstream director now with thor ragnarok coming up i think that's probably going to be our favorite marvel film also because if you know anything about me and or jojo the idea of someone who co-created flight of the concords making a Thor movie with Jeff Goldblum in it is like it makes us think that we've died and this is our afterlife. It's the cinematic equivalent of Odysseus lining up all the axes and shooting the arrow through all, <laughs> this through all, all at the same time. possibly be real. It's such a specific dream <laughs> to the Seams Isla household. It's not a monster movie, but I would definitely recommend Hunt for the Wilder People. That's a great Taika Waititi movie. Yeah, it was great. That was probably my favorite movie of last year. Oh, you have seen it? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. We saw it. It played here in, in Tucson at The Loft, which if you follow me on Twitter, you've heard me ramble on about how much we love going to The Loft. It's basically become our favorite place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I get a bit confused because... Being in Australia, we get a lot of Kiwi movies, and I have no idea of the wider release of some of this stuff. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm sure... I know, I know. like, What We Do in the Shadows was released in New Zealand, like, a full year before it ever came over here. And they did a Kickstarter just to get it over here, like, just to pay for the release, essentially. So, yeah, I, I know there's just kind of a disconnect between what comes out there and what comes out here and when. Oh, yes. And, I mean, it's getting better in some cases where, you know, we'll get it same day or same week. And in other situations, it'll be like, oh, yeah, it doesn't come out for another six months. It's like, huh, yeah, exactly. Great. And then occasionally we'll get stuff earlier. Like, I don't know why. Like, um, <laughs> oh, which was it? It was something. Ah, I'll forget. But yeah, there was one situation where we went to see something in the theater and someone's like, uh, it's not out yet. How have you seen this? And it's like, uh, I don't know. It was, it was on the, the screen. I didn't do anything. <laughs> but yeah, I love that. Thanks to Hunt for the Wilder People, people will go on to whenever Taika Waititi is shown on like the Thor premiere or something. There are at least five comments that will say Scuck's life down the bottom. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's in graffiti. Someone caught it in graffiti in the background in a shot of the Thor trailer. Excellent. There's a shot of Chris Hemsworth standing in front of like a, a graffitied wall somewhere in the city. We don't know what the context is, but right there behind him in spray paint on the wall says Scuck's life. 
<laughs> Excellent. Trust the internet. Exactly. So initially when we were talking about topics for the show, you put forth a few that were right up your alley, and I knew that I could have talked about any of them. But I think when we're talking about something that you haven't already discussed on another podcast, we really can't go any further than the number one thing on your list, and that is Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I was glad you picked that because, as you maybe have guessed from me putting it first and foremost, it was the one I was most hoping you would pick. I wanted to give you some options so that we could have, you know, a conversation that you wanted to have as well. So I put down, you know, Space Ghost. I put down, like, video stores, movie theaters, kind of abstract concepts like that. People on Twitter kind of know me as someone who talks about Gremlins 2, the new batch, a lot. But L has been gracious enough to let me yammer on into it about that already, as well as the Universal Monsters movies. I've got Jurassic Park, but a lot of people had Jurassic Park as a form experience and I feel like there's kind of no shortage of talking about that but Space Ghost Coast to Coast is one that's very personal to me I think I mean there's you know lots of other Space Ghost fans out there don't get me wrong but like it feels pretty specific to a very small section of the population and it's definitely important to me and has been kind of part of my DNA and there's not that much discussion about it relative to some of those other things so because you watched the entirety of it like consecutively right Right. Last fall, when C. Martin Croker passed away, very sadly, he, for anyone who doesn't know kind of the behind the scenes stuff, Clay Croker was not only the voice of Zorak and Moltar, so he's like two thirds of what you're hearing in any given Space Coast episode. He was also an animator and he pretty much did all of the and any original animation in Coast to Coast that wasn't from the 60s show was more or less drawn by his hand 100 percent because you know, there isn't that much of it. So he really was an important part of the foundation of what Space Ghost Coast to Coast is. And when he passed away last year, it it hit a handful of us on the internet very hard. And to honor him, Jojo and I decided to do something we kind of intended to do eventually, which was to watch every episode of Coast to Coast more or less nonstop. We, We did take a break and kind of did it in two parts, but to kind of watch in one big sitting and sort of get down our thoughts about it, because there are things about it that you don't really notice until you do something like that, where you look at it as one big whole. And I'm not sure they even were intentional, but things that kind of jump out to you if you look at it as not just 15 minutes of funny cartoon that aired every now and then, but, but as as kind of a work of art. <laughs> so let's, let's go back a little further. Yes. Because, and my experience with Space Ghost was very kind of tangential and brief in that mm-hmm. I had discovered based upon a recommendation from a friend, you remember back when Adult Swim cartoons were everything to some people? Oh yeah. And I was recommended The Brack Show. And I thought it was funny and kind of absurdist and and weird. Mm -hmm. And someone saying, oh, well, this is a spinoff of Space Coast Coast to Coast. And I went to Big Pond Movies, which is the Australian version of the Netflix DVD service. Okay. And I got the Space Coast Coast to Coast Season 1 DVD. And I put it in, and honestly, I had no idea what I was looking at. (laughs) Because especially like that, that first season... I'm just like, I, have, I don't know what to expect, and somehow I still was not prepared. So do you want to run through a little bit of what the show is and how it got started before we get into the meat of it? Part of why I think Space Ghost kind of hit me so hard as a kid that it really formed a lot of who I am in some strange ways is 
it's a show that could have only existed at the time period that it existed. It, it started in 1994 and it is the product of, you know, the kind of Ted Turner media empire that sprang up in the early 90s where he, you know, there was the TBS, TNT, Turner Broadcasting and all that stuff. And Cartoon Network came out of that. And Cartoon Network started mainly as just a repository for this Warner Brothers cartoon library that Turner had purchased and wanted to capitalize on. So it was all the old Hanna-Barbera and Looney Tunes and you know, all that stuff that Warner's owned and created through the last you know century. And at some point early on in its development, they thought they maybe should have some original content, but they had really no budget to do that because cable TV was kind of the Wild West in the early to mid 90s. It was, you know, there was all kinds of weird stuff out there and there wasn't really any money in it, but it was kind of a place for experimenting. And a handful of people who, you know, worked at Cartoon Network, just programming, decided they could try piecing together old animation into something new. It would be a thing they could just do for, you know, on the cheap. And part of what came out of that was Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which takes mostly pre-existing animation from the Saturday morning cartoon Space Ghost from 1966, which by that point was pretty much entirely forgotten, and reframes it as a talk show, which I think just started because it rhymes. Like, they just thought of the title Space Ghost Coast to Coast, and that just led them to try doing a talk show. So what it is, is these, you know, 60s sci-fi superhero and supervillain characters interviewing 90s celebrities who were, for the most part, has-beens. They're more 60s and 70s celebrities, you know, who were willing to drop down to the CNN studio to shoot a, a talking head interview to promote their latest book or whatever, and then building a weird cartoon around it. And that's the kind of thing where it, in the mid-90s, if you were a kid who stumbled upon it somehow or another it really got your attention because that's not the kind of thing that just that existed <laughs> yeah and the interviews themselves were, were very strange in that they were it was in a, a sort of a an inset floating head and yeah I, i'm trying to remember what, like the answers were then put in out of order to make things seem even more like absurdist and strange or what was the deal sometimes you know the, the the dvds for space ghost and the bonus features there will occasionally be like an uncut interview to kind of give you a glimpse into the process more or less anyone they could get to talk to them at the cnn studios because that was in the same you know turner network building then they had live action cameras which cartoon network didn't have access to other than to go across the street to cnn they would just interview them. And usually, at, especially in the beginning, it was because they had something to promote. But the sense of humor of the people who made the show was such that they found it much more interesting, especially, again, as the show went on and found its voice, to find the weirdest thing they could do with the footage that they had. So sometimes sometimes it's more or less a straight ahead conversation. You can kind of see where, you know, they would have someone often dressed up as Space Ghost. I gather it was usually Andy Merrill, who was the voice of Brack and was also one of the head writers and producers who kind of was another driving force of the whole thing. He would dress up in a Space Ghost suit, which of course didn't look <laughs> good or in any way, it, it, it didn't look not hilarious, let's put it that way, would sometimes be in the room with them. Sometimes they do it by phone, whatever they could work out. And, you know, the, the reaction to that from the guest would range from them desperately trying to plug their thing to being super annoyed that they felt this was beneath them to be doing this. Or, you know, sometimes they'd play along because they would get exactly what it was, especially if the show went on and had been on for a while. But it's always interesting to kind of see where they pieced together what had at one point been an interview into a live action talking head in the middle of a cartoon space talk show set where very often the characters weren't even paying attention to the guest. <laughs> and folks, I'm just going to run through a list of names. 
All right, this is just season one. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've got the BGs, we've got Susan Powder, we've got Bob Denver, Don Wells, and Russell Johnson from Gilligan's Island, Ashley Judd, Timothy Leary, Bobcat Goldthwait, The Ramones, Weird Al Yankovic, Eartha Kitt, Adam West, Lee Merriweather, Joyce Brothers, and Danny Bonaducci. And that's just season one. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some debate amongst Space Ghost nerds, and everyone who's into Space Ghost is a nerd. Like, don't get me wrong. There's no, there are no casual fans of space goes coast to coast there's some debate as to what is the first episode because the first episode produced was uh, elevator the one with ashley judd timothy leary and judy tenuta the first one that they aired was the bg's kevin meany and susan powder in spanish translation <laughs> either one of those is a pretty shocking you know and bold declarative statement as your first episode as to what this thing is going to be you know, you've got that Timothy Leary, who is, you know, counterculture drug <laughs> kingpin, not kingpin, but icon, let's say, of, of the 60s. And Judy Tenuta, who, you know, if you even know who she is, you're a weirdo. And I mean that in an affectionate way. I know who she is. But <laughs> or or you get Susan Powder and the Bee Gees, like either one of those. It doesn't really matter which one you consider the first episode. It kind of says everything you need to you need to know. <laughs> and that first season, they're very big on like theme shows. Like so there's the Gilligan episode. There's Batmantis, where they get the cast of Batman 66. <laughs> Weird Al was the first person to actually request to be on the show somehow, even though he's he's on episode six. So it's pretty early. Somehow he had caught the show, I think, when he was on a hotel room on tour and was so fascinated with it. He he got in touch with Cartoon Network and said he wanted to be on, which makes a lot of sense. I was going to say, yeah, if you've seen UHF, you know, Weird Al has a great tolerance for the absurd and the weird. Exactly. So it's it's there in his name. <laughs> so that first season is kind of just straight ahead doing that concept of like, here's a forgotten cartoon character doing a talk show. And everyone on the show is more or less kind of icons of the 60s and 70s like he was. So there's sort of this vibe of here's a bunch of has-beens, both real and cartoon. <laughs> talking to each other we're going to stick it on late at night on the cartoon network it's pretty formulaic in that first season but it's still jarring enough to get your attention so when did things start getting i was almost going to say weird but stranger let's say. <laughs> yeah i'm look. i'm looking at the the rundown of episodes now and you can kind of watch like as if you watch them all in a row like i said it sort of plays a little differently and you see the way things come together it definitely gets more and more absurdist as it goes I think maybe the first episode where it really starts clicking is Fire Drill, the one with David Byrne and Donny Osmond, (laughs) which, you know, putting those two together is is a clash of tone. Things kind of just become a little more non sequitur. And it ends with what would then become like the classic kind of cop out punch ending where it's just it ends on the weirdest joke possible and then just leaves you there. (laughs) Although I guess I think that one did come after what is really the first big instance of the show just straight up fucking with you which is storybook in which the show seems to be starting as normal but then there's kind of a signal intrusion and suddenly you're watching an old man and an illustrator with a bunch of kids around him on like a public access tv set and he is recounting previous episodes and the the old man is james kirkconnell who starts kind of becoming a recurring character and i gather he was something of a Canadian children's personality, or at least he wanted to be. I don't think he ever really had as much of a career as he maybe intended, but he he ended up becoming kind of this icon of Space Ghost because they start in season two doing this kind of Dadaist thing of like, here's an old man telling you as if he's reading from a storybook what happened in season one. (laughs) And they don't ever comment on what they're doing and you keep waiting for a joke and no joke really ever comes. It's just kind of weird. And then it just stops and there's never like a punchline. And that that is really kind of signals where the show eventually becomes 
a masterpiece. <laughs> As you were saying that, I was thinking back, and I'm trying to think when Freakazoid was on, because I think that was a little after. Yeah, I want to say that started around like 95, 96, yeah, somewhere yeah, in there. It was, well, I'm almost certain it's not 2003, Wikipedia, dumbass. <laughs> ah, 95, it was 95. Okay. And this idea where it's like, Okay, we are ostensibly taking what is a kid's show. Not just making it referential in the way that, oh, we're making references to, you know, singers of the time or, you know, recent movies. It's reaching back like 20 or 30 years to the most the most popular pop culture of the time. Like, Freakazoid has a joke where they show a bit of F-Troop. Right. An F-Troop gag. I only knew what F Troop was because my dad would make a joke about it. I had to go and look it up. And, you know, some of those early Mystery Science Theater episodes, yeah. you know, where they're making casting gags about Mouseketeer movies. Maybe it was something around the people who were writing smart comedy at the time, just mm-hmm. having that touchstone. And it, it just seems like something like in passing where you're just like, oh, okay, you know, we're going to bring back everyone from Gilligan's Island just because. Right. And, I mean, you see that a bit now with you know, stuff like 30 Rock just casually bringing back all of Night Court or, you know, right. three-fifths of Night Court just and, and then yeah. making a thing about how, oh, it's a reunion of friends from Night Court. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I suppose it does still happen, but it's like at the time it was just this kind of weird phenomenon. Yeah, I think there was this thing that happened in kind of the late 80s, early 90s of the first generation that was raised on television started making television. You know, no one before the 50s had been plopped down in front of the TV as a kid and, you know, left to kind of let the TV more or less raise them or at least influence their kind of upbringing. And those 50s and 60s shows were kind of formative to the first TV generation. And then in the 80s and 90s, those kids grew up and started making TV. So there's definitely, I think, a self-referential thing that really starts for the first time in that kind of era. And I, Space Ghost could definitely be seen as a part of that, I think. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said about, of all things, the Simpsons writer's room, where it's like you go from people who did other things and then made the simpsons to kids that grew up watching the simpsons making the simpsons exactly and now you sort of see that happening with the stuff from the 80s and 90s being made by the young tv creators now is sort of kind of a similar cycle where you know what was good about anything from the 80s and 90s is now being expanded upon in a way that had kind of gone away in like the early 2000s children's animation has kind of had a, like a, a dead zone there where no one was really hyped about cartoons in like the late 80s and early 90s after the Simpsons buzz kind of died down and cartoons for adults sort of became a thing. And, you know, now you get people who are clearly influenced by things like, you know, My Little Pony or Care Bears or G.I. Joe or Transformers. And they're making like that, but in a way that sort of is the thing you remember, like you want to remember those things as, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, you know, yeah. Steven Universe is like those, but, I was but better. It's the that. thing that... <laughs> It's the thing you wanted it to be, and it never actually was. So it's sort of a cyclical nature, I think, in TV, especially probably more than any other media, of the things you remember being brought back and hopefully, when it works at least, being made better and not just being a rehashing of that. Yeah, the only analogy I can put is that there's a place in Sydney called Mary's that does burgers and there's like a whiskey bar. And when I first had one of their burgers, I said, this is like the ghost of the snack bar burgers you remember getting when you were a kid. When, like, your parents would stop at the side of the road thing and get you, like, a, a little cheeseburger in white paper. Right. And, like, those were great when you were a kid, but probably if you had them now, they'd be terrible. And this is, like, the platonic ideal of one of those or how you remember it. Yeah. 
exactly. So yeah, it's a burger. Um, there. Analogy solved. Yeah. <laughs> to kind of bring it back to, like, you know, how it entered my life. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I became aware of Space Ghost in any way was when The Mask came out in VHS. The Jim Carrey 1994 smoking classic The Mask. <laughs> which I've, I've not actually seen in, like, 20 years. I have no idea what the experience of watching that now would be like. But I remember, you know, that being a new line property. So it was a Warner Brothers thing and Space Ghost was just starting at the same time. And in a weird bit of cross promotion, they put a little tiny Space Ghost interview with Jim Carrey and Cameron Diaz at the end of the mask VHS. And then like told you to go watch Cartoon Network if you wanted to see more. And I remember that being the first thing. It kind of became part of how I think everyone discovered Space Ghost is in the 90s, at least, was it just kind of came on because you left the TV on when you weren't supposed to. And that started with the weirdness of this thing tacked onto the end of a VHS. And it was also true of the show itself. I don't remember the first time I saw Space Ghost after that. I think that was probably the first time I became aware of it. But like when I actually started watching it, I think I got into Cartoon Planet first. And Cartoon Planet was sort of the kid-friendly Saturday morning spinoff of Space Ghost, where Space Ghost, Zorak, and Brack, Moltar didn't get to come along, and they occasionally would, every now and then, would make a joke about that, would just do kind of do a variety show, where it was the same sort of limited animation recycled thing, and they were singing either public domain songs or weird songs they'd written, or they were reciting poetry, or there'd be little sketches back and forth. And I think that kind of took various forms. Like, sometimes it would be used as bumpers on, like, Turner Saturday Morning Cartoons, and sometimes it would be recut into, like, a half-hour sketch thing. And it was sort of a weird element all its own of sort of this unusual take on a kid's Saturday morning variety show. And I definitely got really into that because like most kids in the 90s, I thought Brack was like the funniest thing. (laughs) And I eventually followed that back to find Space Ghost Coast to Coast because they would air them in like hour long blocks late at night or half hour blocks. You know, they'd cut them up in any which way. And then I eventually saw Space Ghost Coast to Coast, which... This thing of the way it it would sort of just come on the way cable TV in the 90s was of, you know, you didn't necessarily have access to the Internet. So you couldn't like look up more information about this thing you saw. Yeah. And this thing that you find, you may not find it again. So you better pay attention. Right. And it was late at night on Cartoon Network, which was, you know, essentially a channel for kids. You could just watch it all day long and your parents wouldn't care because it was like classic cartoons or it was, you know, innocuous, you know, whatever. But if you left it on too late and you stayed up past your bedtime at like 11 p.m., this weird thing would come into your house that didn't quite look like anything else and it had these live action people you didn't know talking to this cartoon superhero and this giant mantis Uh, and (laughs) something about the underground nature of that was captivating to someone who was a kid in the 90s kind of on the verge of the internet coming about where like you kind of were starting to get the idea of like culture and counterculture and pop culture and like what references to other things were and what art was (laughs) But it wasn't quite there yet where you could easily connect with anyone else. And there was something kind of hypnotic about that. And the fact that it didn't follow any formula or recognizable pattern of what a TV show was supposed to be. It felt dangerous and kind of scary, even though it was, you know, mostly a straight ahead comedy show. You felt like it could do anything at any time. And that was sort of felt edgy and scary in a way that was very appealing to me as like a eight, nine year old, whatever I was when I first really started getting into it. That edginess, that kind of unexpected nature of it is something where it's such a draw especially when you're old enough to know that you probably shouldn't be watching this but also young enough to still have that wonder at the medium and that idea of 
literally anything could happen. I should probably just stick and watch this. I'm not sure if I should talk about this to anyone else kind of thing. Right, exactly. And again, that thing, coming back to that thing where I, I was proud to be the kid who was into stuff no one else knew about, you know, I could talk to friends about it and they wouldn't know what I was talking about. So then I would tell them everything about it. And that was, you know, fun to kind of feel like I was in on a secret that most fourth, fifth, sixth graders in Botno, North Dakota weren't really hip to like what this weird quasi 60s art talk show late at night on tv was about most kids my age had to be in bed before then and because my mom was a night owl and sometimes i would be left home alone more or less because my dad had gone to bed early i would end up watching it and yeah it had that thrill of something you weren't necessarily supposed to be into but you liked it even if you couldn't quite put into words why so if i were to ask what your if not your favorite then your most prototypically this is a space ghost episode slash bit would be what would you say it was and that's a tough question in itself because a lot of my favorite episodes are the ones that come kind of right near the end. And part of why I love them so much is the show starts doing this weird thing where it becomes a show about itself falling apart. It becomes even more meta as it goes on than it started. Where if you if you jumped into like the last couple seasons, you would have no idea what's going on. And it wouldn't maybe necessarily work. I mean, you kind of have to like work up to it. I think like the, the best episodes I'd maybe recommend to like someone who'd never seen it before, I would probably start out in season one, like Banjo, the Weird Alan Schooley D episode. The Girly Show is a good one where it's like a, it's supposed to be a themed show tribute to women and he gets Fran Drescher, Carol Channing and Alice Cooper. <laughs> Because <laughs> he thinks Alice Cooper is a woman. That's so dumb. And it's great not only that's it's so great not dumb. only because not only because that's a funny joke, but because you get this back to back. Carol Channing is one of the most game participants they ever had. She is there. She's excited. She's loving talking to Space Ghost. They really like make a connection. And then Alice Cooper just does not want to be there, <laughs> and he is like not cooperating. And those two extremes are always the best. Whether it's someone who is like super into it and ready to to play ball, or someone who is just being actively like combative. That episode has both. I mean, it's kind of an early one where you can sort of get the gist of what they're doing. As for like later episodes, like the ones that Jojo and I tend to put on kind of like all the time, our number one favorite is Knife and Around. It's a post-adult swim episode with Bjork and Tom York. Okay. Where Space Ghost has apparently married Bjork at some point. As you do. Right. Like the rest of Space Ghost, there's not really a good way to describe how funny it is or why. But that's probably the one I come back to most. Right after that was Flip Mode, the one where Buster Rhymes is the guest. And Space Ghost has decided he's having a mystery murder dinner theater. <laughs> and there's a gas leak, so everyone's hallucinating. <laughs> Fire Ant is such a beautiful piece of art. That's the one where for the first 12 minutes, which is how long the show usually goes, it's, you know, 12-minute episodes, he's talking to Conan O'Brien, who, of course, is a good interview because Conan O'Brien's always funny. And then he starts fixating on this ant that bit him. And he follows it out of the studio and then he follows it out into the ghost planet. And then for the next 12 minutes, you watch Space Ghost following an ant through these various Hanna-Barbera backgrounds oh my God. and not saying or doing anything else. And it just becomes this piece of, you know, Dadaist art where you're waiting for something to happen and nothing happens for like 11 solid minutes until finally he gets to where the ant came from. And there's a giant ant there and he runs screaming from it yelling, your son is a moron. And then the show, the show just ends. <laughs> You know, the masterpieces are, are things like that where it's just screwing with you. But, of course, you can't, like, just jump right into those. You need to kind of know what the status quo is. Warren is another great one where Warren is an episode that just loops three times and doesn't. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Warren is an episode. And it's weird enough to begin with because it's not 
the talk show. It starts with Space Ghost Zarek and Moltar in Space Ghost's apartment watching the show. And Space Ghost's like, wait, I'm not on tonight. And there's someone on there talking like him. And it's Gary Owens, who was the voice of Space Ghost in the 60s. So he's the original Space Ghost talking as Space Ghost. And he decides to go investigate this. And he ends up on this planet where this talking bush named Warren is telling him that he's replaced him with Gary. (laughs) And there's no, again, there's no way to describe what's going on really without sounding like a crazy person. But then at some point we cut back to Space Ghost's apartment and we suddenly realize the first scene is happening again. And then it just continues and the whole episode happens again. And then it does it a third time. (laughs) And you think maybe you're having a stroke (laughs) because why, what's going on? There's no real jokes here. It's just the same thing happening three times in a row. And then it, the last time it just ends and there's not actually any punchline to it. And the brilliant thing about that was they aired it that way once. And then like the next week they reran it, but they didn't loop it. They just aired it as one regular 12 minute episode and then it stopped. And I remember seeing that I saw the original airing and thought it was like brilliant and weird the way it did this looping thing. And then I tried to catch it the next time. I was like, Oh great. It's that episode where it loops three times and it didn't loop. And I thought I was losing my mind. (laughs) And it, like it just starts doing things like that, where it transcending the idea of being just a weird cartoon show and starts really getting into your head and kind of being like art in a way that art rarely gets to be art on TV. It becomes fine art. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that's about as high praise as you can give. And I think that's a good note for us to end on. So, Andrew, if people wanted to find your stuff on the Internet. Whereabouts would they go? Well, the most reliable place to find me is probably on Twitter, at Andrew Isla, A-N-D-R-E-W-I-H-L-A, where I talk, again, mainly about movies, but also about just anything else that comes up, and I you know, plug whatever else I'm doing. Check out TalkFilmSociety.com, where me and a lot of other people who love film, who are talented writers, just write whatever we feel like, more or less, about film. I'm on Tumblr, although I haven't updated that in a long time, andrewrila.tumblr.com. If you are an Arizona type, JoJo and I will be tabling at Mad Monster Party, in Scottsdale, May 19th to the 21st. So you can come buy JoJo's great paintings and books about monsters. And I will also be debuting my new fantasy novella, which I'm calling The Bones of Her Shadows, which I'll be making available online shortly after that. And as you probably know, especially if you follow me online and know that I'm not able to shut up about it, Twin Peaks is returning this month on May 21st, and I'm going to have a lot of talking around that to do. There's a... I cannot believe we've gotten this long into the episode and not mentioned Twin Peaks. <laughs> That's the other pillar of your brand. Exactly. And and that, you know, it's kind of more been a formative experience of my adulthood more than childhood. So I thought it maybe wasn't necessarily a topic for this show, but it's certainly a thing that I talk incessantly about to the point that I know I'm obnoxious, but I can't not do it. I don't care. You can unfollow me <laughs> if you don't want to hear about it. With the new season coming up, I am actually not going to be tweeting about it. I am not going to be online much at all. I'm going to be kind of intentionally ignoring the internet. But there are a couple projects where I will be sort of interacting with it for anyone who is interested to enjoy. Kind of been hinting not subtly about it on Twitter these last couple months. Jojo and I and our dear and brilliant friend Krista Lee, who is on Twitter as Oh Poor Pup, have something coming up that's going to debut right before the show where we're going to be kind of dealing with our Twin Peaks feelings. And I think it'll be a fun time if you want to join us for that. That's fantastic. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for being on the show. This has been great fun. Thank you for having me.
you very much to Andrew Isla for his time. Andrew was pretty cagey about it on the show, but I can tell you, since that episode was recorded, his new podcast, Don't Zap the Geek, which is a Twin Peaks podcast, has aired. You can find that at Jojo Seems' Patreon, which is patreon.com slash J-O-J-O-S-E-A-M-E-S. Choosing Andrew's signature drink was a long and complicated affair. We started out in a conversation I'm going to include in the back matter of this episode, talking about the Kentucky Nightmare, a very weird episode of Space Goes Coast to Coast, where the show is taken over by a liquor store, and there's a shark involved. It's complicated. Andrew came up with his own version of the Kentucky Nightmare, which I'm going to include here, and I brainstormed a variation of the Kentucky Nightmare based on the death flip, which includes tequila, Jägermeister, chartreuse, and an entire egg. But as JoJo seems pointed out on Twitter, there is nothing Kentucky about that. So I fell back on an old tiki standard, the Kentucky Drought. In a shaker full of ice, combine one ounce of peach juice, half an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of triple sec, a quarter ounce of Southern Comfort, one and a half ounces of bourbon, and half an ounce of simple syrup. Shake vigorously and strain into either a cocktail glass or a tiki mug with a whimsical umbrella. This beverage is brought to you by Old Kentucky Shark of Kentucky Nightmare Talk Show Liquor Corporation. You might remember him. He's the fish you met earlier. And for the Kentucky Nightmare, in a short glass, layer equal parts of coffee liqueur and Jim Beam Fire Whiskey, or, you know, Fireball if you're not picky. Add a few dashes of hot sauce and you're done. This drink is like a hamburger with Predator Brights. You'd know if you'd been there. Your guitar would explode in your hands. Enjoy! Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month, or as much as you want. Hey, if you're lucky, I may even add in a particular $2,000 bonus level where I get to cook you dinner. I'm, I'm probably not going to do that. Logistics would be ridiculous. But what you can get is early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, just really appreciate it. In a couple of days, I'm going to be recording a special bonus episode for Patreon backers only, which is all about everything cool that I've listened to, read, or seen this month and that will be available from the $1 level. Speaking of, certain levels of the Patreon come with special thanks in the show. So this week, I'm thanking Michelle Neal Heidorn. Thanks very much, Michelle. I know you've been listening for a while, and you're pretty awesome. If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find the Spotify playlist that I update each and every week, 
with all the music I use on the show, all the way back to episode one, including this song. It's Silver Rays by Django Django. I got this album ages ago, and I just keep coming back to it. I update the podcast as soon as the new episode goes live, so go and subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to writer and former Comics Alliance staffer, RIP, James Leesk, about Canadian content, from Street Sense to Jana Vision to Student Bodies. Join me, won't you? One of them just went through and just, like, chucked out all their CDs. Mm-hmm. Okay, I did that with my DVDs the previous move because I went and looked, and almost all of them had actually not come off the shelves since I had moved in previously. Right. And so I'm like, okay, you know, maybe maybe if this hasn't moved, it's time to let the DVD of Samuel L. Jackson in The Negotiator. I can let that one go. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it says about us that when we moved across the country last year we kept every single dvd cd and vinyl record but we got rid of all our furniture first and foremost i don't know what that says about our priorities you sit on piles of elvis presley records and jojo sits on a pile of what (laughs) hr puff and stuff vhs's (laughs) there's no time now hoist me to alpha centauri at once away wait a minute that's the wrong music Thank you, that's better. Ow! Don't everybody go freaking out on me. This has happened once before, but I forgot what I did to fix it. Yeah, we poked you with sticks till you fell down. Remember? You sure I didn't harness the power of the sun? No, it's definitely sticks. Beaten with sticks. All right, go get them. How's it going, man? <laughs> I didn't bother to check up and I, I figured, you know, but I should have known that like Arizona's confusing situation would not translate to someone in another country. Yeah, well, it's also that we've recently had daylight savings, which changes things by an hour over here and right which is different from you guys as daylight savings so it's and arizona doesn't do daylight savings uh, so it's different than else. yeah there was this thing like i guess you know when the continental u.s first decided like oh hey we should do something to make our productive hours be the daylight hours and shift the time arizona who you know no one wants to go outside during daylight hours in the summer because it's too hot was like nah fuck the sunlight let's make our productive hours the dark the dark times <laughs> yeah and they just took advantage of the sun being out less so we don't change which is super weird like adjusting to everyone else around us changing especially in this era of all of our friends being in different places in the country yeah i'm, I'm very lucky at the fact that my phone automatically adjusts and i'm very happy about that because i'm someone who just out of force of habit has multiple clocks in every room mm-hmm. because when i was younger i used to dissociate a lot and so I would just kind of space out and wake up and be like, all right, where am I? What time is it? How long is it? Being able to keep a clock in the line of sight 
was very important to me. The only problem is that daylight savings comes around and you have to change every single clock in the house. Yeah. <laughs> or you remember one, but you don't remember another. So you're looking and you're like, oh no, it's one. It's like, oh wait, no, it's two. Oh no, I don't know which is right. And you have that weird moment of dissonance. It's especially weird having just moved from, you know, after spending the entire first 28 and a half years of my life in the central time zone where you're not that far off from anybody. You know, it's two hours difference to one coast and one hour from the other. You're, you're not really like a totally different time of day ever. And then coming here, where it's like now all our friends on the East Coast, it's three hours later for them. <laughs> which is so weird to get used to, like, seeing people talk about TV shows or being a late night, whatever. And it's like, it's five o'clock. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm in a whole different time of day from you. It's very strange. Yeah, I was trying to get my mom to understand that when it's four o'clock in the afternoon in Winnipeg, that means it's 7 a.m. here. Yeah. And so that means I can't call you when I get home from work. Because when I get home from work... <laughs> It will be the difference. Yeah, it'll be like four in the morning over there. And she's like, I don't, I just don't see why you can't come. And like, well, see the curvature of the earth. <laughs> My dad used to, like in the first couple of years I was here, one, I had an answering machine that would play the message out loud because mm -hmm. it was 2003. And of course. also my dad would call, but he would, I, I showed him how to check on his computer when you click it and it says what the different time is in other places. Right. But he's like, oh, no, that's too much trouble. I'll just call. I'm sure it'll work out. No, <laughs> it does not work out because <laughs> I hear the ring and I just, like slowly wake up and I'm, ringing, I'm like, I'm not answering it. It's like three in the morning. And, I, and then he hears, hey, are you there? Hey, pick up if you're there. Oh, I guess you're not there. Anyway, I was just going to call you about this thing, because I saw this thing on TV, right? And they were talking about Australia, and I thought I was going to... Uh, oh, maybe... Oh, maybe you're there now. Maybe because what I said featured... And I'm not, like, laying in bed listening to this <laughs> for, like, 20 minutes. Anyway, I suppose I'll call you tomorrow. And it's like, cool. Yeah, I remember that weird thing of like in the 90s when everyone had those out loud answering machines of like coming home and hearing someone talking in your house. Mm -hmm. That was always weird. And then you get the, <laughs> oh, I'm actually here. Yeah, exactly. The idea of someone picking up mid-message doesn't really happen anymore. And it's funny because I was like literally two hours ago talking to James Leask about swingers. Mm -hmm. And a huge plot point in that movie revolves around an answering machine. And coming home to like, a million messages and trying to fit in the right thing into a message. And it's just like, yeah. like that particular slice of social anxiety before we had that word. All the sitcoms where people would be embarrassed by something playing in their living room on the on the answering machine. Yeah, oh, there was a whole, like, I can think there's like a whole thing where someone has to get the tape before the person listens to it. Yeah, I think that was like a, a Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah. And then like he was swearing, but there was also a similar one in... No, that was a that was a sex tape. Oh goddamn! Road trip <laughs> infiltrating my brain. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like we're in a good place to start this conversation. Oh so, yeah, talking uh, talking about how weird like media was in the mid '90s is absolutely kind of going to be key to brand. discussing space coast coast to coast. And yeah, my brand. Hello, Conan. What? Are you still here? Welcome to the program. I'm sorry. I thought the show was over. It started. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Well then, greetings, I'm Space Ghost. Spaceman. Space Ghost. You were a spaceman who died and became a space ghost. I've always ghost. been dead, Conan. No one can always be dead, Space Ghost. I was dead long before you were born, Conan. And I'll be dead long before you're dead. Space Ghost is obviously a spaceman who died and became a space ghost. 
I know you don't want the kids to know that you died. <laughs> but you died, baby. You gotta get down with that. No. Face it, space ghost! No. You're a spaceman that choked on a muffin! That, sir, is impossible because I am allergic to muffins! Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're thinking of Muffin Hunter. He's different. I saw that on the WB, actually. They'll carry anything. <laughs> well, they won't carry anything, Conan, because I pitched them a show where Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny were teenagers, and I was a teenager, too, and we were all pirates. But every week, we would have different jobs and identities, and they called back and said it was stupid, well... and that I was stupid, too. And let me tell you something. There's nothing stupid about a teenage rabbit teaching good hygiene. Nothing! And, I mean, if, if we find that we get to the end of the Space Coast conversation and there's still a bit of time left, I'll grab one of your other topics and we just have a little chat about that, too. Oh, sure. Although, somehow, I think, just, I have this weird idea that maybe you have lots to say about Space Coast. I might. <laughs> and I know you do the cocktail thing, which is always mm -hmm. great. Yeah. Um, I also took the liberty of coming up with a Space Coast cocktail that I could be drinking while we're talking in advance. Oh, really? What's that? I decided to call it the Destructo Ray. Okay. And it is sour green apple Smirnoff with a cranberry Red Bull and some seltzer water. <laughs> the, the the bright I'm red meeting the green of like Zorax flesh as he explodes. I was say, what color would that even be? It's not, it's kind of an unappetizing color. It kind of turns brown once all the ingredients mix, but it's pretty <laughs> tasty. I've maybe already had too much to really be responsible on a podcast. <laughs> that is okay i think if you're going to be irresponsible on a podcast this is an okay one. Oh, good i also thought you know there's you know a East coast episode that entirely revolves around liquor the the kentucky nightmare episode and i was like <laughs> well kentucky nightmare liquor they don't t say what that means but it sounds awful so i thought as a backup i should also make one of those maybe for later like after we're done just for fun and i thought that one i, I grabbed some coffee liqueur and some kentucky jim beam kentucky fire whiskey i'm gonna mix those and that's gonna be oh that's the cinnamon stuff right yeah exactly so it's basically fireball cool. basically fireball yeah but it's got kentucky stuff did you see they're making a hellboy liqueur that's cinnamon schnapps i did i want to try it i know i mean they gotta have the don't mess with me lady i've been drinking with skeletons on the front they gotta they yes just gotta. yeah like jojo and i are big like whiskey drinkers i remember i went to a high school like reunion thing it was the it was the reunion of the high school class above mine because i was more friends with them than my own class and they invited me to their reunion because i wasn't gonna be able to make mine and we were passing around a bottle of fireball and everyone was like oh god no Ugh. And, like, the two of us just finished it on our own, just straight drinking it out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah, I have fond memories, or sort of pseudo-memories, of being in dorms at university. And we had bought test tube shot glasses, because we thought they were the coolest thing. Sure. Except for then you realize you can't put them down, because they're rounded at the bottom. <laughs> right. And so we were using those to drink Fireball, and then we just basically had to lay them on their sides on top of my little bar fridge. And they <laughs> stuck there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually had to chisel them out, like using like, a pen and some leverage. And then I realized there was like the indentation of like solidified fireball where the test tube had been lying. And as far as I know, it's still there. I mean, it was 16 years ago, but it's probably still there. <laughs> By the way, I just wrote this down. Kentucky Nightmare Whiskey Drink. Can do. <laughs> <laughs> Kentucky Nightmare Talk Show Liquor Corporation. Um, I actually do have a Kentucky drought, which does involve bourbon, I think. Peach juice, lemon juice, triple sec, southern comfort, bourbon, and simple syrup. 
That sounds like a pretty a pretty Space Ghost drink, to be honest. Yeah, I was gonna say it'd be you'd have to have something like a little whimsical thing floating in it and like a right. little umbrella. And I'd maybe stick like I don't know a gummy shark in it to go with the Kentucky Nightmare <laughs> episode where the Kentucky Nightmare shark is hanging around. I'm gonna write gummy shark. <laughs> <laughs> He's the fish you met earlier. <laughs> Space Ghost says. Hey, your son just bit me here. I want to know what you're going to do about it. Your son is a moron! 